0: Hi, my name is Daniel. Uh, I'm part of the leadership team here. Um, it's a real privilege and a delight to serve you guys and to do it in this way this morning. So I hope you'll, you'll put up with me. Maybe fair enough to say won't go longer than an hour, hopefully. All right. So no, we won't do it now. I promise. I promise. Um, perhaps you could do us a favor. Actually, while we get started here, get your phones out if you've got a phone. Go on to Google Images, and I want you to type in Bear Grylls impression, okay? If you've got data, that is probably. I never have data, I'm constantly running out of it. Like, I'm gonna stand over by Dave here. And if you go to Images, grand. Could you pick out the fourth one for us there, Dave? Yeah. yeah. So even the third or fourth one. Who, who is that? It is. There I am. <laughs> Did you know that? If you type in Bear Grylls impression, the third or fourth image, I will be there doing an impression of Bear Grylls, believe it or not. <laughs> And you're probably thinking, what on earth, how on earth? I also think that too. Um, It's my little claim to fame there, anyway. A few years ago, I'll give you a bit of context here now, okay? A few years ago, I had uh, a wonderful opportunity to go to North Canada, uh, just below the Arctic Circle, and spend several weeks with a community out there uh, called Iqaluit. And my time there was a mixture of different things. It was part of my undergrad research uh, but I was also spending time with a church, an Anglican church, believe it or not, shaped like an igloo. It's amazing. Um, and just to be with the people, uh, the indigenous people, the Inuit, uh, as well as others as well from other parts of Canada and parts of the world. Um, and it was a special time, special time in lots of different ways. Um, and I tell you that story because I want to introduce something to you this morning, something I came across while I was there. Um... Before we get to that, I just want to read this quote from Richard Waugh. He, he said this, I think Christianity has created a great problem in the Western world by repeatedly presenting itself not as a way of seeing all things, but as one competing ideology among many. Instead of leading us to see God in new and surprising places, it too often has led to us to confine God inside our place. Simeon Weil, the brilliant French resistor, said that the tragedy of Christianity is that it came to see itself as replacing Others, one particular morning I went for a walk when I was in Iqaluit and uh, around the city there's a number of different hills and on one particular hill there was this wooden cross. I think it'll come up behind me here with any luck. Hopefully, maybe, maybe not. There we go, yes. So wooden cross and I was overlooking Iqaluit And I thought, that's intriguing, I'll I'll, I'll go and have a closer look. And as I got closer, I could see that things were scribbled and marked on this cross. And as I was scanning the different scribbles and marks, I came across this one particular phrase, and it really stood out. And if you go to the next slide, it said, there used to be a beautiful Inukshuk here. This is an Inukshuk. You heard of it before? Have you seen it? Maybe? Maybe not? It's a very small mixture. Usually they're about the size of me. Mounds of stone on top of each other. An integral part, an important part of Inuit culture. Uh, its meaning there or thereabouts is, is human substitute. And had different uses. Uh, one use was to help corral game that they were hunting. And another use would be a food store. There'd be an emergency food store below this during the cold winter months when it was needed. And other use would just be a landmarker so people could get their bearings and, and know where where they could go. And since then, and even, even I find myself at times now, I consider that moment of seeing those words on the cross. And it saddens me that someone felt it necessary to replace the Inukshot with the cross, as though there had to be this choice. You can only have one or the other. We're continuing our series of on resident aliens, and today's sort of subtitle, I suppose, is, is about inclusion, or embrace, as I've termed it. Theologian Wolf said this, might not the will for identity be fueling a great deal of conflicts in our world from the macro of nations, race, cultures, ideologies, religion, sexuality, education, class, to even the micro within families and friendships? Might the will of identity over someone else's identity? And my question to you is, what identities do we hold dear? What identities do we even socialize, socialize our children with that they are colored with a particular lens in terms of how they see others? And when I think about that, it makes me think about Jesus and how he gave up his identity, his status of heaven for the other, for us. And he did it even before we even acknowledged our sin. That phrase, whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And with that, I've got another question. What identities are we prepared to die to? And that's hard, isn't it? Because to give up the self for the sake of the other is often met, not met with reciprocation, is it? Often our self-giving is met with exploitation and brutality when we look around the world. Yet yeah, this is what Jesus endured and this is what it means to take up your cross. How do we become that peculiar community that embraces the other? What does that look like in the face of injustice, suffering and oppression? And we're gonna look at a few different things this morning in order to kind of unpack the idea of embrace. The first one is, is a church of embrace means, uh, means distance and belonging. At the beginning of this series, uh, Dave Armstrong took us through the story of Israel from Abraham through to Daniel and he highlighted this theme of exile, that Israel on this journey of exile and that we as a church are too in exile still while we live on this earth, that we are resident aliens, we are strangers, we are sojourners, even immigrants. The truth that there has, this truth has a profound impact then on how we live our lives in community. Yeah, you may be thinking the ideal of one body in shared exile had this kind of whiff of utopian dream. The reality of harmonious community can be far from sight, yeah? Particularly within the church. But what are the implications for the rest of society, cultures and religions around us? In entering this new kingdom, aren't we in in that act of freedom of entering into this kingdom in one hand, shunning and excluding the world in the other? Let's just consider the foundation of Christian community. And to do that, I want us to look at a passage in 1 Corinthians 12. It says this. You can go to it if you like. I'll be coming, going through this quite quickly. From verse 12 to 13 and verse 27, it says, The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up the one whole body. So it is with the, whole, with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we've all been baptized into one body by one spirit. And we all share the same spirit. In verse 27, all of you together are Christ's body and each of you is part of it. Paul here is explaining that Christ unites different bodies into one body, not simply because he's the one leader or that he has this vision of one community, but above all, it's through his suffering. Jews, Gentiles are made one body of God's children without regard to ethnicity, nationality, gender, race or class, precisely in the cross of Christ. And I'm gonna come back to that at the end. This unity is possible because Jesus gave himself up. Wolf says this, far from being the assertion of one against many, the cross is the self-giving of the one for many. Unity here is not the result of this sacred violence, which obliterates the particularity of bodies, but it's a fruit of Christ's self-sacrifice, which breaks down the enmity between them. And, you know, I think for Paul, what divides people and communities is not so much difference. You may disagree with me; that's okay. I think it's more to do with enmity, something that is far more deep-rooted when we look into it. So, what are the implications for this kind of universalism? We see at Pentecost a profound act of God, encouraging this very, very thing in Acts two seven. To 12, Peter is addressing the crowd as, in, as a new believer, as someone where the Holy Spirit has come upon him, and there's a numerous amounts of people around from different parts of the world, and they were completely amazed, because they understood him, each with their different language, languages understood what Peter was saying in that moment, how could it be? The verse reads this, they were completely amazed, how can this be, they exclaimed, these people are from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages, Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Figria, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. I love this list. It highlights people from different places, with different languages, different dialects. There were different cultures and histories. And there is this unifying moment. I often wonder this, though. Do you think these people from that day forth continue to understand each other as completely as they did then? Probably not, no. They retained who they were. As the theologian put it, each culture can retain its own cultural specificity. Christians need not lose their cultural identity as Jew or Gentile or whatever identity it might be and become one humanity that is neither. At the same time, no culture can retain its own tribal deities. Religion must be deethnicized so that ethnicity can be desacralized. Paul deprived each culture of ultimacy in order to give all legitimacy in the wider family of cultures. Through one faith, one must depart from one's own culture because the ultimate allegiance... Is given to God and Jesus who transcends every culture. See, Christians, they're not just insiders who have taken flight to a new Christian culture and therefore have become outsiders, disconnected and dissident. I raise my eyebrows at that. Rather, they've responded to the call of the gospel and stepped with one foot outside their culture and one foot firmly placed in it. And it's in this place of tension, of hardship and of suffering, the call to carry your cross not one made by a God who seated in heaven from afar stating you do this, but one who actually walked it, who did it, who left the authority and throne of heaven and came down to this earth. You see, both distance and belonging are essential for the church, for us as disciples. Belonging without distance destroys. Distance without belonging just isolates. There's a short story during World War II uh, within Germany, a Christian community who created a thing called the Barman Declaration. It was a type of confession, and as I said, it was created during the era of Nazi Germany, and it was formulated due to the fact that a group known as the Christian movement had completely submitted to the authority of the Nazi government. They were adopting their ideology, and they were allowing them to corrupt the message of the gospel. And this is what it says. You were slaughtered, and by your blood, you ransom for God, saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 5 and 9. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28. All the churches of Jesus Christ scattered in diverse cultures have been redeemed for God by the blood of the Lamb to form one multicultural community of faith. The blood that binds them as brothers and sisters is more precious than the blood, the language, the customs, the political allegiances, or even economic interests that may separate them. We reject the false doctrine, as though a church should place allegiance to the culture it inhabits and the nation to which it belongs, above the commitment to brothers and sisters from other cultures and nations, servants to the one Jesus Christ, their common Lord, and members of God's new community. What does it mean to to reach across the dividing lines as we become that peculiar culture that is both within and without that is both distant but also belongs what does that actually look like and as I was thinking about this I was chatting with Ryan yesterday as I was talking about what things I might be saying and, and I mentioned one of the th- examples I was going to give was about bonfires and he says you're going to go there I was like yeah I'm going to go there but maybe not as you think. The 11th night, we all know it. Usually most of us run from it, perhaps. We go away. We leave it behind. We all have various thoughts about it, don't we, yeah? I was chatting to a lady a couple of weeks ago in a community, and she was talking about the 11th night and the significance it has for her. And I listened to this story. And for her... It's not so much about maybe the grand narratives there of difference sort of competing ideologies. And there's many other things you could say about it, okay? But she marks it as a time of remembrance for her of a person that she once knew who died around that time. And it's significant for her because she marks it as a time where she remembers that person with longing and love and care. And so she goes to her local bonfire. And that's what she does. To me, we need to get past these narratives of division and conflict to the people who who share often stories that surprise us. And you know, in that moment, I could connect with her and that story, as I'm sure you can, because we all have experienced loss. We always need time to remember, to have anniversaries, Where we live in are we estate, And Amy and I, um, when we moved last year, I noticed they were building a bonfire. And if I'm honest, I sighed a wee bit as we were moving in. I was like, ah, don't want this in my community. But as this year has gone on, I felt God convict me a lot actually about that. And I'm determined this year, I'm gonna go along. I'm gonna listen to people. I'm gonna share life with them. Yes, I have some disagreements. But I wanna move past that to the people. Because as it was shared a few weeks ago, there before me are the image of God. The Imago Day is placed and marked in each and every one of us. What about globally? What about the dividing lines that are there too? When we think about Brexit, when we think about borders maybe closing, what happens to refugees, to asylum seekers that find themselves struggling to even get into this country here? What do we do or what can we do as a church? I think it's brilliant that as a church, yesterday we had family matinee and it's wonderful just to open our doors and welcome people from all walks of life. And some of those people are refugees and asylum seekers, families that that come into our doors regularly every month and we just get to share food and watch a film together and it's, it's, it's amazing, it's great. And I want us to keep doing that as a church, that we would cross those dividing lines, that we would welcome people. But as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, what could we do more so? And I came across something, and it's just an idea at the moment. I'm not saying we're going to do it, but I'm actually going to pose the question to us as a community. What would it look like? What could we do? And if there are a few of you this morning that think, yeah, I'd be up for that, please come and speak to me. It's a thing called community sponsorship. It's where a community comes together and decides they're going to sponsor a family to be able to make a home in this country as refugees who are seeking asylum costs a lot. You have to provide a home. You have to pay for a home. You have to provide financial provision because benefits won't be available to them at the start. Could we do something like that, I wonder? Could we go beyond what we do now to end the cycle of exclusion? Exclusion can take many forms. We often think of exclusion as something about maybe eliminating the other or dominating the other but it's also about abandoning. It's isolating, it's not looking. Famous story of Samaritan, as those that walked past and not, did not see. Open our eyes, what could we do? A church of embrace means ending the cycle of exclusion. There was a man who left Sarajevo before the war in 92 and he joined the Serbian army who was shelling the city and he said in the course of a phone conversation to his best friend, who'd remained and whose apartment was totally destroyed by a shell. There is no choice. It's either us or them. And what he meant was, either they will inhabit this place or they will. Either we will be destroyed or we will destroy them. No other option is available. And in all wars, whether large or small, whether carried out in battlefields, city streets, living rooms, or offices, we come across this basic exclusionary polarity. It's us against them, it's their gain or it's our loss. And there may be a situation you're thinking where there is no choice. Perhaps you've been there. Yet we should not forget that to destroy the other rather than destroy oneself is itself a choice. You know, I believe that if there is will, if there is courage, if there's imagination and there is hope that this stark polarity can be overcome. And just to help us think this through, I want us to take a quick look at the story of Cain and Abel, Okay. We're going to do this quite quickly, but I want you to keep up. So if you go to Genesis 4, verses 1 to 16, I'm going to read this to you. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I produced a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions." And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, you will, not be, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength. You should be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. And from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Edom the story of Cain is often misinterpreted as a form of parable that we categorize as an us and them kind of story. Yeah? We either portray ourselves as an able or we cast someone else as a Cain. And much of the creation story is located in this kind of primal history and it has something to tell us about the character of God but also as humanity as a whole. As Klaus Westermann states, the intention of primal history is underscore that every human being is potentially Cain and Abel, just as every human being is Adam and Eve. Therefore, the story about a murderous Cain is a story about us. This story takes the perspective of the victim not only to condemn the perpetrator, but at the same time to contravene the tendency of the victim to become perpetrator there is this thin line between justice and revenge, and it's even thinner when it comes to the matter of the heart. This passage begins by introducing two brothers as equals. They're born of the same parents. They're both engaging in equally respectable occupations. One's a keeper of sheep, and the other a tiller of land. And they too, the two of them offer equally appropriate sacrifices to God in relation to their roles. And this equality is even underscored by a literary device in verses 2 and 5. The names of the two alternate four times if you look. So it goes Abel, Cain, Cain, Abel, Abel, Cain. So it sets this out on purpose. Yet this equality also hides and heightens an inequality. Cain was more than likely a rich farmer and landowner. He was the firstborn. Yet verse 3 states that Cain brought just some of his crops. Whereas Abel, who was more likely the poorer man, being second, had a small flock probably, and in verse four states that he brought the best parts, the firstborn lambs. And God responds by accepting Abel's offering and not Cain. God recognizes the inequality of their gift and thus sets in motion a response from Cain. Vols notes it like this, the initial problem of the story is the formal equality and the common belonging. Brothers with complementary vocations. In relation to the inescapable difference of being first and second born, rich and poor, honored and despised, regarded and disregarded, from the outset, all of human relations are fraught with this tension between equality and difference in the context of which the relation between the self and the other has to be negotiated. First came envy, that Abel was regarded above Cain in verse 5. The anger is directed at God and Abel. Directed at Abel not because he was at fault, but because Abel's offering was truly acceptable, whereas Cain's was not. Cain was confronted with God's measure of what truly matters and what is truly great. Since he could not change this measure and refused to change himself, he then excluded both God and Abel from his life. Anger was this first link of exclusions. This was followed by a turning turning a deaf ear to God's warning in verse 6 and 7. seven. By proposing to go out to the field, he then banished the community from the exercise and the judgment of his act. And finally, he performed the ultimate act of exclusion. He murdered his own brother. Cain's act of sin is also accompanied by this ideology of sin. Go back to the creation story. Cain responded to God's question with, where is your brother Abel? It's responded with a lie. I do not know. He implicitly denies the crime. He then ridicules the question and attempts attempt to deflect its challenge. Am I my brother's keeper? This ideology of sin functions to deny both the act and the responsibility for it. I was laughing yesterday because Naomi um, got some crisps that were meant to be taken to a lunch we're going to today. And uh, I came back so I went out to get something from the shops and they were open. This is a true ideology of sin right here in working, okay? I was like, did you open them? She's like, no, I didn't open them. So she denied it, she lied. And then she blamed Amelia, our daughter, for opening them. It was truly awful. <laughs> but I couldn't believe, you know, when you're reading the story, here we have Cain totally denying it. And then he has the audacity to say to God, Am I my brother's keeper? I think you're thinking the same as me. Lord, just smote him, just smote him now. Get rid of him, wipe him from the face of the earth. The consequences of Cain's murder not only robbed him of a brother, but also the possibility of belonging. By his own act of exclusion, he has excluded himself from all relationships, from the land below, from God above, from the community around him. Yet, hope still lies in God and his insertion into Cain's affairs, even before the wrongdoing. God asked him a question, why are you still angry? But this was ineffective. God's second insertion, where is your brother Abel? It didn't seem to achieve much either. It only elicited a self-justifying denial. God's third insertion was an angry word of judgment. What have you done? And in the face of this question and the consequence of his actions, Cain finally acknowledges his wrong. God's fourth and final insertion is perhaps the most surprising one and certainly the most profound. The Lord marks Cain. Not to mark him as a perpetrator, but actually to protect him as a potential victim. It's an act of grace. The same God who did not regard Cain's, Cain's scanty offering bestowed kindness upon the murderer who was in danger. God did not abandon Cain to a cycle of exclusions. He himself had set in motion. Labeled by the mark, Cain can still belong to God, sorry, labeled by that mark, Cain still belonged to God and was protected by him even as he settled away from the presence of the lord that 's significant that is the story of God who intervenes, a God who is yes a God of judgment but also a God of immense grace. Perhaps to highlight this in a more practical and practical way of a story. Uh, many years ago, I worked with London City Mission. And one of the missionaries there, Dada, is a Nigerian chap. And um, a friend of mine who was working with him quite closely throughout that year told me a story about Dada. Uh, that a few years ago, prior to that, uh, he found out that his brother was murdered back in Nigeria. And the perpetrator, obviously, was, was trialed, was sentenced, and was, was sent to prison. But prison in that part of the world was not a, not a cushy place, shall we say. That provision for that person was dependent not on the state, but actually the families of the perpetrators. If families provided for them while they were in prison, then they were okay. But if a person had no family or no support, they had absolutely nothing. And more than likely would have died. Data find out about this person, that he had no family, no one supporting him while he was in prison. The man who murdered his brother supported him in prison, paid for him to have food, paid for him to have comfort. There is a story of a man who ended the cycle of exclusion. As we know, this act of grace and the ending of the cycle is ultimately found in the crucifixion. The idea of ending the cycle of exclusion is not an easy thing when you're coming, at, coming from a position of repentance or even a position of forgiveness. It's not that we don't like being wrong, but almost invariably, there are others who are not completely right either. As Carl Jung observed after World War II, most confessions come as a mixture of repentance, self-defense, and even some lust for revenge. Jesus' teaching seemed to fly in the face of our need for justice or revenge to turn the other cheek, to forgive as many times over and hanging on the cross, Jesus became the ultimate example of his own teaching. He prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Commenting on this prayer, Jürgen Moltmann writes, with this prayer of Christ, the universal religion of revenge is overcome and the universal law of retaliation is annulled in the name of the crucified. now, From now on, only forgiveness holds sway. Christianity that has the right to appeal to him is a religion of reconciliation. To forgive those that have wronged one is an act of higher sovereignty and great inner freedom. In forgiving and reconciling, the victims are superior to the perpetrators and free themselves from compulsion to evil deeds. I should add here that forgiveness is not a substitute for justice. And if we, if we had time, I'd like to unpack this a bit more. But what I will say though is that every act of forgiveness enthrones justice, it draws attention to the violations precisely by revealing the truth. My question to you is though, how we satisfy our thirst for justice and calm, and calm our passion of revenge so as to practice forgiveness? I think the Psalms provide us with a wonderful blueprint for this, we see in the Psalms honest anger and rage, but who are they directed at? Is it the perpetrator? No, they're often about the situation, or injustice, or wrongdoing, but they're directed towards Yahweh. These prayers bring the puzzlement and the rage of the oppressed into the presence of the God of justice. The Psalms are an example for us as followers of God that we can bring before him rage. We can bring before him anger and he can take it. And that should be practiced. As Wolf points out, there is no mere cathartic discharge of pent up aggression before the almighty who ought to care. Much more significantly, by placing unattended rage before God, we place both our unjust enemy and our own vengeful self face to face with a God who who loves and does justice. You may be wondering why am I harping on about forgiveness? Well, it's because this is the boundary line between exclusion and embrace. At the heart of the cross is Christ's stance of not letting the other remain as an enemy and of creating space within himself for the offender to come in. That is us and that is them. When God sets out to embrace the enemy, the result is the cross. On the cross, as Wolf puts it, is the dancing circle of self-giving and mutually indwelling divine persons who open up for the enemy. In the agony of the passion, the movement stops for a brief moment and a fissure appears so that sinful humanity can join in. We the others, the enemies, the victims, the oppressors are embraced by the divine persons who loves us with the same love which they love each other and therefore make space for us within their own eternal embrace. Jesus' greatest agony was not that he suffered but that he was abandoned. The heart of the cross is that of God abandoning himself in order that we would no longer be abandoned. And we as disciples and as his church should reflect this. Abandoning ourselves for the sake of the other, it's gonna cost us. And that is the risk of grace. But I tell you now, it is worth it. It is so worth it. I'm gonna finish my story I shared earlier about the Inukshuk. I'm gonna get the band to come up while I do this too. And then we're gonna respond with Eucharist together. So that story I told, actually I wrote about it at the time I was, I was doing a blog and I want to read you the excerpt from that as a, maybe just as a final reflection as we go away and as we ponder this more about us as a church but maybe individually as well in our own spaces and places. Marsh wrote this, something about the land and the people created within them. He's talking about missionaries and ministers, a deep desire to remain and work in the north part of Canada It drew them with great commission to this harsh land and its Inuit inhabitants. Perhaps indeed one had to be just a little crazed, but to explain the Arctic lure is a bit like trying to explain the taste of banana to one who has never eaten one. You just simply have to experience the adventure for yourself. There is certainly a touch of crazed romanticism and a sense of adventure about coming to the Arctic. Even within my short time here, I've discovered that most non-Inuit would agree with this statement. However, for some, such idealism fades quickly. These people are known as the transients and are usually gone within a few years. Most have come to make their fortune and others cannot cope with the isolation. Yet I would argue this isolation does not reflect the communities in Nunavut, but rather the inability or unwillingness to integrate into the culture. In the past week, two non-inuit stated they they had made their best friends here and would not dream of living anywhere else. Roughly a quarter of the population within that part of the world would be transient. With this in mind, from my conversations I've had, it takes a long time to be fully accepted into the community. Some mentioned it takes 10 years, minimum. Even having a baby here and staying goes a long way to show your commitment to that community. Transient communities are not a new phenomenon and could be considered the social norm in Western societies, particularly cities. Such fluidity in communities is not a healthy thing, I don't think. There is a lot to be said for making roots, investing time, energy, and knowledge and love in a community. Mike Gardner was a retired minister who came to North Canada in his early 20s, and he personifies such commitment. I had the privilege of witnessing Mike speak at a soup kitchen today. Despite the inability to understand what was being said, since he spoke in Uktitut, he was speaking. Um, There was no confusion interpreting the mood and atmosphere of the room. There was a very reverent response when Mike spoke and people were clearly engaged in what he said. There was a resounding amen when Mike finished the grace. You could see on people's faces an appreciation for his presence and the words spoken. And then I inserted my story about the Anukshuk and what was inscribed. You can either have one or the other There is certainly an element of change and transformation when it comes to the gospel. When we make the choice to believe in Jesus, follow him and his teachings, to live a life trying to reflect his character, we do change. Yet God has made us unique individuals from different cultural backgrounds, and that is something worth celebrating and thanking God for. History is full of sad reminders when people and nations have tried to enforce their particular cultural idea. The beauty of the gospel is that it transcends nation, creed, and culture. The true gospel far from harms culture. Rather, it enhances all that is good and noble about that culture and enables it to become that which God intended it to be. Mike is an example of someone who invested his entire life to that end. I believe his response to the choice of the anukshak or the cross would be an unequivocal and a resounding both we are going to respond by coming to the table. Um, God's greatest example to us of what it means to embrace the other. And God did that willingly on a cross. He abandoned himself for us in order that we might abandon ourselves for those that we get to meet and be within this community.